Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, a very special bonus episode. I'm Scott Phillips, and I don't have Doc with me this week, at least. I have a special guest, Stephen Mav. Now, Stephen is the Queensland Chair of the Australian Shareholder Association and also a member director of the National Body. Stephen, g'day. G'day, Scott. How are you going? Mate, I'm very, very well, although before recording, we did uh, share our, our commiserations with the Wallabies loss on the weekend. We are recording this on Monday, the 2nd of November, and the... the um, the words are a little bit, a little bit raw still, mate. It's a little bit painful, isn't it? It is a little bit, yeah. I, uh, you know, I've had a few losses in the share market, but I've also <laughs> learned to uh, have to take losses on the chin, being a Wallaby supporter against the All Blacks. Don't know about you, mate. I reckon share losses almost hurt, hurt less than uh, less than a Wallabies loss. Eighteen years of Bledisloe drought is is a very, very long time. Well, hopefully they're less consistent, mate. If you're losing as much as the Wallabies have lost to the All Blacks, your portfolio would look pretty sick. I reckon so. you're doing something wrong. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully 2021 is our year, both in the share market Absolutely. and the Wallabies. Let's not let's not talk too much about that, mate. Give us a quick potted uh, answer. So let's let's set this up. The Australian Shareholders Association. I hope most of our listeners have heard of the ASA. Maybe a decent chunk are members of the ASA. Just from your perspective, and as, as the Queensland Chair and as a member director of the ASA, what exactly is the Australian Shareholders Association? Yeah, well, in a nutshell, Scott, it's a, it's a not-for-profit association, and it's all about trying to help retail shareholders predominantly in two ways. So the the first way is through education, and there's lots of things that we do to help. Uh, you know, investors on their journey, uh, really designed for retail investors. And the second thing is advocacy. So, you know, some ways that we try and stand up for retail shareholders' rights and make sure they're getting a fair go with the companies that they invest in. Nice, I like it. All right, let, look, let's let's talk a little bit about that later. And we should say the reason we're chatting is, frankly, you reached out and said, "Hey, you readers might, or your listeners might want to know a bit more about the ASA." And I said, "Yeah, that's probably a, a very good idea." So we started chatting. We've chatted back and forth a couple of times on, on the phone and email, and just kind of touch base. And we figured it was a good chance to have a chat in this particular podcast. Before we do that, mate, let's, if you don't mind, I'll, 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 I'll dig into your your life a little bit. Um, let's give our listeners a sense of who Stephen Mab actually is. You're you're a non-paid volunteer director and, and chair. So um, thank you on behalf of a retail share for doing that but this isn't your first rodeo you, you've come from a, a successful career in private business yeah absolutely I, I've been very fortunate in my uh, you know my executive career over the years I um, kind of started out in the shoe business and ended up uh, with a, a couple of other Aussie business partners um, you know creating a brand that we took over to the US in 2007 just before the GFC Oh, and uh, yeah, it was a pretty scary time, but uh, fortunately we decided to stick it out and um, ended up turning the brand into one of the top 20 footwear brands in America, which was a fantastic run and yeah, we're very, very lucky. And then we actually sold the brand in 2018 to one of the big publicly listed footwear groups out of St. Louis and uh, and I took that opportunity. I lived over there for about 12 years with my wife and kids and when we sold the business, I took that opportunity to kind of, you know, uh, cash out, if you like, and return permanently back to Australia. So for the last few years, I've basically been full-time investing and I um, stumbled across the Motley Fool uh, podcast a few years ago and have really enjoyed listening to it and and learned a lot from you guys and obviously had also subscribed to several of the Motley Fool services along the way too and, and have been tracking that and doing really well uh, with my Motley Fool picks. So, kind uh, man, thank you. No, yeah, all, all true, all true. So, uh, so yeah, I, uh, I've basically been trying to absorb as much information and, uh, you know, get as educated as I possibly can as quickly as I can to make sure that I'm allocating my capital in, in a smart way and, uh, and, you know, trying not to mess it up. And, and obviously I stumbled across the Australian Shareholders Association a few years ago as well. So, uh, right, right. So when I yeah when I kind of discovered them I, I joined up as well and started getting you know involved in in local meetings and and again watching lots of the webinars and podcasts and all those kinds of things that ASA produce and uh, and yeah over the last kind of six to twelve months have now become a bit more involved with uh, with the board and uh, the Queensland roles so uh, so yeah it's been a great journey so far I feel very very lucky but uh, you know still have obviously a, a lot to learn and um, you know a long way to go. As, as do we all. Mate, I'm, I'm not going to let you off the hook that quickly because uh, you, are, you are an example of, of something we don't see 
enough of, which is Australian success stories going to the rest of the world. So if you don't mind, this is completely off script, by the way. Not that we have a script, but you know, you know, you know our podcast, we go pretty much anywhere. Let, yeah, let's tangent yeah, it up to start with, mate. Um, I wonder if you've got just, just some thoughts, lessons, ideas. Um, what did you learn? What, what are you worried about? What are the challenges and opportunities? Think about taking, taking an Austra- you know, originally a small Australian business that you obviously built up to be a very, very large brand and, and very successful business. You know what? I, I don't have a. I really have a question other than tell me something that we should know about that journey. Whether it's lessons for other entrepreneurs, the challenges, the policy settings, the opportunities. You know what, what would you what would you want us to know um, if we were investing in trying to start our own businesses? If we were people just curious to see how more Australian companies can be successful on the global stage. Yeah, look, I think that you know, probably the first thing I'd say was that we, we did have a, you know, a very good product. It had a really good point of difference and still does. Obviously, the brand's still going, but the product really had a, a distinct point of difference that, that worked. So it wasn't, um, wasn't all just about marketing. There was a really um, you know, genuine benefit to the product that we had. And, and right. that, that in turn resulted in, to coin a phrase that I often hear doc use, very sticky customers. Um, <laughs> yep, you know, yep. we had a lot of repeat purchase from our customers. Once they discovered their first pair, they'd come back and buy lots more. So I think that's something I've been looking for in my investing now too, you know, companies that have got loyal customers or, you know, very high net promoter scores, for example. That's that's a really big advantage. And we measured net promoter score and kept trying to get better at that too. And, uh, okay. you know, I'm looking for that now in the companies I invest in, I guess, is, you know, nice. yep those that have really happy, delighted, satisfied customers that are willing to tell other people that, you know, that helps. <laughs> yes. The other thing I'd say is, um, you know, we had a bit of a philosophy, me personally in particular with the team that I manage, and we had several hundred people in the company by, by 2018, so it was a pretty big wow. organisation. But we used to focus on something we called progress, not perfection. So okay. we would constantly be trying to progress or constantly try and, you know, improve incrementally. And, and I've just been thinking about that recently, that it's, it's probably something that's applicable to a, you know, to a group like the, the Australian Shareholders Association as well. I mean, we've got thousands of members and we take fairly, um, you know, I guess distinct or fairly uh, clear positions on lots of issues like, you know, capital raisings and ESG, um, you know, director elections, board compositions, all those kinds of things. And it's really difficult to, to keep everyone in the group happy. Obviously, there's lots <laughs> of views. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, again, I've been thinking about that a lot recently and thinking, well, you know, it's gonna, it's, it'll be impossible to be perfect. We're not going to make everybody happy all of the time. But how do we keep progressing so that retail shareholders as a class or as a, as a group um, on average can keep, you know, getting better or getting better results or, you know, being treated better by the companies that they're investing in. So they're probably the two, I guess, uh, you know, things that have stuck with me. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Some free, free advice for our, for our listeners. And, and you, mentioned, you mentioned, you know, net promoter scores and companies that are fans. I, I have only relatively recently, despite, I've always loved brands, right? I've always been a big brand focused investor, but yeah. I've underestimated even, even recently, until recently, the, the power of, I, I joke for the power of cults. But think about the Tesla, Tesla customers or Apple customers who will, you know, if you're a Tesla, if you're a Tesla customer, you send the company 1500 bucks, say, give me a car in a couple of years, please. If you're an Apple customer, you're going to line up around the block and pay well and truly over the odds for a phone. That is, I'm sure, wonderful and I'm sure probably even the best out there, but um, there's just something that's kind of almost irrationally wonderful about their about their customers. And I think when you're in that sort of marketplace, you, you have to have a great product, don't get me wrong. But when you can overlay that with not just a great product, but fanatical customers, um, that's, that's, a, right. that's a heck of a thing, right? Yeah, I mean, we're getting bombarded with so much marketing and advertising and information mm-hmm. all of the time from the companies themselves, yeah, um, right. and it's and it's easy to kind of glaze over, I think, sometimes mm-hmm. with that. But but when an, it's a friend or a family member or a relative or whatever that's you know that's saying to you, "Hey, Scott, I just tried this out, and these are fantastic. You should give them a go." Or I've just subscribed to Netflix, and you know I'm watching it all the time. It's fantastic. I mean, yeah. that that recommendation is much more likely to, I think, lead to someone trying the product or trying the service. So, yeah, when you can get your net promoter score up into the, um, you know, the 70s or 80s, and it's, it's kind of a sliding scale from minus 100, where 100% of your customers are telling people how bad you are, <laughs> up to positive 100. Right. And, and there's a lot of great brands out there. Like, you know, we, yeah. we benchmarked ourselves against Nike, for example, and as great as that brand is, their net promoter mm-hmm. score was 30, I think, at the time. Yeah. So... Um, when you can get north of that, uh, it, it normally indicates that you've got a pretty good growth and, uh, you know, profit potential if you can keep your net promoter score higher than 30, 40, 50 kind of thing and have lots more people telling their friends and family how great you are. 
Very nice. Well done. All right, let's let's uh, let's move on from that. You, you gave me a little bit. Thank you for doing that. Uh, I just thought I'd ask because you know we don't often get to speak yeah, to no people who've had that success of taking something Australian overseas or at least creating a global business from Australia. Maybe more to the point, and that's um that's a huge opportunity. Look, let's Absolutely. talk about the Australian Shareholders Association for a second. You talked about some of the so when, when we first kind of you know started made contact, we kind of talked about you know how we could how we could work together and, and share some of what you guys are doing and, and vice versa, share some of the motley fool with with your members, and it was it was a really productive conversation. I think. Um, I, I have, I'll be frank, Matt, I've been an on and off again member of the ASA for, for quite a few years. And I joined the ASA sometimes when I, or rejoin, when I when I think I should do it because it's the right thing to do, to basically add weight to the number of retail investors who are having the opportunity to be a group. You know, it's, without wanting to draw any ideological or political connotations, there's, there's some value in having more members of the shareholders union, right? Just the very idea that we can all kind of band together for for a, for a common cause in theory and, and in practice to increase or improve the the lot of the retail shareholder. I think that's super, super useful. Absolutely. On the other hand, I have from time to time had had, had cause to, I guess, as you rightly point out, as you started, I don't know what you're necessarily referring to, so I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm clearly not going to do that. Um, but that sense of, as you say, there's so many different, uh, I guess, views being put. And, and the problem with democracy in general, including of you know, the ASA and everything else is, everyone's going to have a slightly different view and you're never going to get to a single view without a dictatorship, right? You don't want to do that as an organisation. By the same token, that does mean you're always going to have points of difference. And I suppose maybe the key point, and I won't editorialise too much more, maybe the key point is at least if we're all pushing roughly in the right direction, you can afford differences across the board as long as the general, as you say, progress, not perfection, right? Maybe that's exactly the point. Um, so maybe, maybe that's it. When you when you think about the ASA, I'll give you the opportunity up front. What's the pitch? But why why should our listeners think about joining something like the ASA? They've already got their own services with us or with somebody else. I'm out of a financial planner. They've got uh, all the opportunities. They will do everything else. What what is it about the ASA that you'd be saying if you had a chance now to do your your stump speech and say come and join the ASA? Because finish that finish that for me. I think first of all because it's a network of people that are probably like you or have similar goals to you in a lot of ways in that they're private retail investors and and many of them have got decades of experience investing in Australia. Mm. So you can get a tremendous amount of information or potentially avoid some mistakes or, you know, some some problems just by talking to the other members of the group and and they don't have any agenda. They're just, you know, sharing their personal story or their, you know, wins and losses over the years with you when you talk to them at a a local meeting or online, wherever it might be. Um, So I think, first of all, it's that, you know, there's a network of people here, thousands of people across the country that are, you know, got similar or probably the same kinds of objectives that you might as a a retail investor. And uh, and the other thing is that uh, the group is, I think, overall doing a great job uh, standing up for retail shareholders with the companies that uh, that what we call we monitor in particular. So so to go into the, that that in a little more detail, yeah, yeah, we have a team of company monitors across the country, and and we'd love to have more, but you know we've we've got a team that can cover around about the ASX two hundred. So. What happens Which is, is pretty if, bloody good, just quietly in a volunteer organisation, can I say? Yeah, absolutely. And and these are people that are you know very again normally very experienced investors, um, you know, and willing to go and talk to the companies mm. about uh, about their business and about you know the, the the plans or the you know the resolutions, for example, that you're going to see at an AGM, and whether they're you know uh, in the best interests of all of their shareholders, including their retail shareholders. So so to give you an example. I monitor a company called Jumbo Interactive, which I know you're familiar with. It's a, you yeah. know, I think it's a Motley Fool recommendation in one of the services yes. <laughs> that, I, that I have. Um, so Jumbo has grown a lot over the years, as you know, many of the listeners probably know. And this year was the first year that we decided to to cover Jumbo um, because they're based up in Brisbane, and uh, and I had an interest in them. So I thought, great, I'll you know volunteer to to monitor Jumbo. And uh, I got the chance to meet with the chair and uh, and and a couple of the other team members there and the chair is a new chair. She just joined the organisation a few months ago. So it was a really interesting um, process and and one that gave me a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, hope for the future around how this, you know, can help shareholders because we got to put our, I guess, our thoughts and our, you know, our, our positions firsthand to the new chair, talk through the remuneration report, talk through the incentive schemes, talk through... Um, you know how their how their bonuses worked for management. Talk through their annual report and how easy it was to read those kind of things, 
and she was really receptive to uh, to you know little areas like that that they could potentially improve going forward. So I'm very confident uh, as a result of you know this year's interaction and one that we'll obviously continue to have going forward that Jumbo will be more cognizant going forward of how they communicate with their retail shareholders and what they're you know what they're doing if they you know raise capital or how they're incentivizing their executives etc. So. Um, so that's something that, you know, the average retail investor isn't going to get access to the board. They aren't necessarily going to be able to talk to the board. Um, but you can have a group like the ASA that's doing that on your behalf. And uh, most of the time, I think, capturing the, you know, the goals or the, you know, the wishes of retail shareholders in terms of, you know, how we're, how we're going to vote and the kinds of things that we're going to, you know, look for the companies to be doing. Nice, I like that. And I think, I think you're right. It, it makes broad sense that, as long as you have an organisation that has your general kind of philosophical approach, which is, you know, in the interest of retail shareholders writ large, then you're going to have a you're going to have a pretty good outcome. And as you say, you're not going to get a chance as an individual shareholder necessarily. Because those medium and large companies, most small companies, frankly, will take your call because they're so they're so desperate to help <laughs> exactly, anybody. Yeah. If you maybe might possibly buy their shares, they'll you know they'll get the CFO on the phone. Um, yeah. But as you say, once you get into the mid and large cap area, it's, it's just harder to get that sort of exposure. And frankly, you know, individual shareholders. Are a range of people from the, the, the semi-interested should put my money somewhere my brother gave me a tip for divide bhp through to the people like yourself who are effectively full-time independent retail shareholders doing this you know effectively as a day job um who are who are deeply deeply trying to become educated and involved and, and get their stuff done and then of course people like us and others like us that, that do you know the same sort of things but from a different perspective and that that the ability for all those people's interests to be drawn together, I think, is the key strength of the ASA to kind of put that put that forward. Absolutely. Um, and just to expand quickly yeah. on, you know, how that benefits you as well, if you're mm. like me, particularly when you first start investing, you probably got these letters in the mail that, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. asked you yep. Yep. Uh, how to vote or, you know, yep. ask for your proxy vote or whatever it might be. Or yep. these days you're getting an email, you know, asking for, mm-hmm. you know, for, for your voting intentions. And most people don't do anything with that. It's kind of like I'm not going to read through the whole annual report and figure all this out. Um, so your vote basically goes to the chair normally. The chair's going to yeah. vote, you know, however they like to at the meeting. So so really with, you know, with ASA, whether you're a member or you actually don't even need to be a member to allocate your proxies to the ASA, um, any any retail shareholder can do that. Um, but basically, uh, you know, if you elect to, to nominate the ASA as your, your proxy, they will then go along and vote for you. So you don't even really need to worry about filling the forms out or, um, you know, or uh, attending the meeting. And, uh, and you can revoke that at any time too. So if you don't like the way ASA is going to vote on something, for example, and you want to change your mind, you can always, you know, take your proxies back as well. So I think, you know, that's a great way to, you know, still have your voice heard and, and generally um, have it heard in the way that's probably in the best interest of, you know, most retail shareholders without mm-hmm. having to do a whole bunch of work yourself. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to hit you with a couple of challenges I have with the, the idea of the ASA as a group and how it sometimes I, – I sometimes agree and, and very occasionally, but sometimes disagree with the, the approach you guys take. But, sure. I, but first, before we do any of that, I'm curious just more broadly to think about how you – as someone who's used to being or has in the past been an executive of a company where hierarchy matters and you get to, for better or worse, put your own two cents forward. Of course, you get your, your the feedback from the people you work with and then and then you make the decision, right? That's that's the way these things work. Yeah. As a member director, uh, you are you are only effectively, I mean, you obviously get your input, but it's almost reversed, right? You you get, so here's what I think we should do. And the, and the members say, thanks, Stephen, we no longer require your services or conversely, actually, good idea, Stephen, go and do it. Or, or maybe even worse, um, I hear what you say. I completely disagree. Go and do something. Go and do the exact opposite of what you want to do because you're our proxy, right? You are you are the person like you know directors of, of companies. Your job is to represent, in this case, the shareholders literally, but the association rather than the shareholders of a company. Um, you know that that just to share me about that challenge of how you kind of approach that going from an executive role to effectively the a representative role. Yeah, no, it is It is an interesting challenge. It's a good question. I think broadly most of the positions that we take come from what's called our policy committee, and it's basically a group, again, of volunteers with real interest in this area talking to the membership. So they will go out and canvas or survey, you know, most of the members and ask for their, you know, their opinions or their thoughts on these things, as well as we do have a, uh, you know, a, a small team of employees in our Sydney head office and one of those is a policy and advocacy manager that got, has a lot of experience and, uh, you know, including yeah, right. on the other side in this area to help, you know, create those positions. So, mm. yeah, most of the time, the you know, the positions or the, the ways that we're going to vote or the, 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 the topics that we want to talk to boards about 
have come from the membership. And as I said, it's impossible to keep thousands and thousands and thousands of people happy on every issue every time. But for the yep, most part, absolutely. you know, the majority of the members' views are, are heard and that's kind of what the position tends to be. And I'll give an example at the moment is ESG. So obviously, you know, you guys, you and the doc have talked about this a lot lately okay. um, and, you know, how impactful is ethical investing and all those kinds of things. And I've been fascinated, you know, following along this, this you know, conversation as well. But... If you were to say, does the ASA need to take a position on ESG? Well, I personally think we do, right? We're standing up for retail shareholders. We're educating retail shareholders. It's obviously, you know, important then that the group has a position on ESG matters. But trying to come up with an ESG position that's going to, particularly the the ethical (laughs) and the environmental part of it, trying to take a position on that when the views are pretty polarised in sections of the the country, it's going to be very no, difficult I mean, right, to have everybody ASX, happy. ASX as companies are across those. You're, you're, you're not able to, as an, as an association, only represent the shareholders of ethical companies or air quotes ethical companies, right? You're exactly. going to be, by exactly. definition, if it's ASX listed, you are and, and your members own it, you have some degree of responsibility and you, and you can't take a view against, I'll just pick coal mining for the fun of it, um, because you've got Whitehaven and New Hope and, and plenty of That's other coal right. mines on the ASX where you've got, a, you've got to have a view. You can't say coal mining is, well, you can say I guess coal, coal mining is bad, but at some level as as the representative, you have to have a view on how you deal with those companies as, right. as, the, as the association of its owners effectively. That's right. So I guess for, for me, again, that kind of comes back to the progress, not perfection mantra a, a little bit. So how can we keep trying to, take, you know, better and better positions on those things going forward based on, you know, I guess where society and, you know, finance in general is heading as well as yeah, the right. views of the membership as, as, a, as a group. So yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the, I guess, the sensible or the common sense position we're trying to take on those things. And if you really disagree with the E position we might take, then right, right. obviously you, you wouldn't allocate your votes to, yeah, to, to yeah. the ASA. You go and vote those votes yourself as the, as the alternative and that's fine. It is an interesting challenge you guys have because you really have, I would say two, well, let me let me characterise it, you can tell me why I'm wrong. Um, you, you have two objectives that are almost at right angles to each other. The first is to represent the best interests of shareholders across the board in every company on the ASX effectively. You don't mind it at all, but, but conceptually as the shareholders association, the representative of yeah. shareholders. On the other hand, you do have a role in education or in um, improving the ability of shareholders to make their own decisions, which... In theory, would that you know would suggest that some companies are better than others to invest in at times? That's obviously what the Motley Fool does for a quid. So you can't get this. It's they're not they're not opposite at all, but they are kind of at right angles. On one hand, you are for every shareholder of every company, no matter what they are, how how good they are, how bad they are. On the other hand, you do have a role of kind of education and to some degree helping your members discern good from bad or better from worse in, in whatever ESG finance governance, the whole box and dice. Um, how do you kind of think about those two to the extent they are, again, not competing, but they're kind of a, a bit off, you know, they're, they're kind of right angles to each other. They, they, don't, they don't quite go down the same path. Yeah, I, I think when it comes to the education part of it, we, we, we try not to take a strong position on whether, you know, one thing's right or wrong when it comes to educating, you know, folks. It's more about providing right. the, the information, the fact-based information mm-hmm. from a wide variety of sources for members to consider and then make up their own minds. So there's there's okay. much less of a position taken on those things, obviously. Uh-huh. We'll have fund managers come and present on their fund and their theme. We'll have, um, you know, economists come and speak on the macro. Uh-huh. So there's a really wide variety of folks that present at the, the regular monthly members' meetings that happen all over the country. Um, obviously, there's members that present as well. So you'll have members that get up and actually present things that might be working for them for other members to hear about. Um, and then we also have a national conference every year that um, typically uh, is a two-day event where, again, you have a really broad uh, s- uh, cross-section of presenters and you can pick and choose which sessions you want to go to, obviously, to you know to tap into the things that you're most interested in. We've got folks presenting on crypto. We've got folks presenting on bonds and fixed interests. Like, there's a really broad section of things that we try and educate investors on. And probably the two things that I think have been the most exciting since my time joining are a couple of new programs we've launched, which one is called Winvest, which is just launching at the moment. And that's all about educating women um, to be uh, more successful investors. And that's going to be a program predominantly run by women for women. So it'll be a great chance to interact with 
other women um, that are on a similar journey to you with, you know, again, lots of great female presenters and speakers that, uh, that you can hopefully learn from. And that, that's just part of being a member. You get access to, to Windvest. And then also one of the new programs we've just launched is called Univest, which is all about youth. So what we're trying to do there is obviously educate younger members to, you know, particularly take, take uh, uh, or, or benefit from compounding. And I've heard you and Doc talk about compounding many times, and I agree. It's one of the wonders of the yeah, world. It is. And, and I wish that I had have known about it a little bit earlier myself, but hopefully it's not too late. And I'm now <laughs> trying to pass that on to younger folks in my life, just nice, the benefit nice. of, you know, getting into the market and, you know, letting compounding work for you over time. So, so again, with our Invest program, that'll be a way that we're trying to, you know, help educate the next generation of investors and get them started a bit earlier than they might otherwise. Unreal. I think I've, I, I might have even said only just this past weekend that uh, women and, and young people are my two kind of, you know, passion areas of in, investing. You know, us blokes that tend to be kind of the, the average investor don't don't find it too difficult to get going. It's kind of made for us. We're made for it, the way it's done, the way we do it. It just tends to be the case. Our membership is massively dominated by blokes and yeah. don't 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 uh, have a problem with that at all. It's great. But more, more women and young, more young people investing, I think, as you say, are the, are the two areas. I mean, I mean, imagine, again, uh, Warren Buffett's old joke, he started investing at 11 and his biggest regret that he didn't start earlier, um, which, <laughs> yeah, again, is kind of, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a nice line, but it's also, it's also particularly true. And for those who will be benefited by the program, so I'm glad you, I'm glad you guys are doing it. So that's, that's awesome. Absolutely. Wait, so I mean, let, another great way, yeah. just quickly, that, you know, we've yeah. tried to, to help, uh, I guess, uh, you know, women in general is with the strong position ASA has taken on women on boards. So, you know, over the last five or 10 years, um, we, we again provide voting intentions for director elections at AGM. So if you've got a company that's an all-male board and they're not proposing mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, have any board renewal and have any, any women added to the board, for example, typically we would be voting against the re-election yeah. of the male directors to try and make a, you know, make a difference. So mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that has made a difference. I think us and other groups, I think, over the last five or ten years really have resulted in some, some great positive change there. And at the moment, I think the vast majority of the ASX 200 companies now have at least 30% women on their boards. And, and for me, that isn't a token thing. I've seen firsthand the, you know, the incredible benefits that you get from diversity of, of thought and experience and gender uh, you know, in, in a management team. So I'm, I'm really proud that that's something we've helped, I guess, drive over the years. And, uh, and the same thing would happen today if we went to a, uh, you know, an AGM and, uh, and there weren't at least 30% women on the board, um, we'd be taking issue with that board and trying to get them to change. Awesome. Uh, I think I think it's important too. I think it's it's important to make the delineation between the um, for those who are listening to us thinking you know the, the virtue signaling kind of thing that gets thrown around, which I, I'm kind of sick of. But the idea of you know are you Absolutely. doing just because it's the cool thing to do? Um, partly it's you know, it's worth doing because it's worth doing because it's the right thing to do. On the other hand, as you rightly say, it's also financially beneficial. So yeah, whether, whether you're doing it out of pure self interest or out of the interest of helping other people, which, whichever of those two choices you want to go with, um, it, it is good. It is good practice either way, right? So it's a nice thing to be able to yeah, say, you know what, right. it's the right thing because it's the right thing. But if you don't believe me, at least accept that it's the right thing is going to make you money, and that's that's a pretty that's a pretty strong compelling argument, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Value stocks, markets, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now. Uh, let me let me let me throw a couple of uh, challenges at you, just you know, out of out of fun and, and, and kindness, but you know, just the, the the potential criticisms. The first is for all of the for all of the um, the talk about independent boards. We hear a lot about that. The ASX has rules about that. You guys are pretty keen on that. Um, the likes of and, and Jerry Harvey's a bit of a lightning rod, so, so I'll, I'll mention him. But I'll also mention people like Warren Buffett. The ASA's rules would would suggest that Michelle should vote against Warren Buffett's re-election as a chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, for example. Now it's an obvious one, and maybe he is the exception that proves the rule. But the idea of independence as as a director, I've I've written about this, I've spoken about this, so my my view is on the record. Um, I would rather have investors who are have skin in the game, who know the business as well, who are super engaged with that. And if I've got to back somebody to look after my investment, I want somebody who's been around forever, who's got plenty of skin in the game, who knows the business, who's going to go and try and make it successful, rather than the air quotes professional director who's on 15 different boards, makes a living out of being independent across all these different areas, flits in, flits out, knows all the buzzwords. You know, I, I want Warren Buffett running the business. And, and despite the ASA's, ASA's continued or occasional grief with, with Jerry Harvey, and probably for the right reasons, by the way, in some cases, um, you know, the, the, the arbitrariness of some of those rules are one of the things I, I kind of have a, have a challenge with. I know you have to 
pick a policy somehow, somewhere. Um, I'm, I'm going to say I think the ASA is wrong on this one. I think the, the, the business world is better for insiders, for owner-managers. Owner, owner um, again, you know, in your own business, I wouldn't have wanted to say you voted off a board because you've been there for X period of time or the board somehow didn't pass an independence test. Your thoughts on, on board independence and, and the ASA's view on that? Yeah, I think it's a really good question, Scott. And and just for the record, I, I actually went and did the company director's course last year and graduated from that. So I've kind of, you know, I guess, got ticketed, if you like, in terms of what is best practice for, <laughs> yep. for directors. And if you haven't yep. heard of it, that's the Australian Institute of Company Directors, which is kind of the peak body that tries to educate and um you know, help directors in, in Australia. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, they take a similar position. The ASX listing rules take a similar position in that you want the majority of the board to be independent. Now, I, you know, I love Warren Buffett and I love the Berkshire story. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I see that argument. I think it'd be, you know, crazy to try and get Warren Buffett off the board of Berkshire. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I guess the, the the kind of position that that I personally take that I think is in sync with with ASA is that we're looking for, you know, the majority of the board to be independent, Uh, not that everyone on the board's independent. And I think it's fantastic when you've got directors or chairs that have been on the board for for many years with lots of skin in the game, lots of experience. You know, we're not trying to vote those folks off off the board. We're just trying to make sure that there's, you know, there's some... And and the, the, the role of the independent director primarily is to look after their shareholders. It isn't to look after management. So that's the concept at, at heart, I think, that you're yeah. you're looking for a you know a group of independent directors on the board that are representing the shareholders, not just taking care of the insiders of the company. And to me, that's probably the price you pay for going public. If you don't like that, then you maybe you stay private and you have a private board and you run it however you like. But once you become a public company, it just seems to me that that's the balance, right? You get you're going to invite. Um, you know, re- retail or other shareholders' capital into the com- company, um, it, it, it's the trade-off that, that you need some independence on your board to look after those folks. And, and look, there's there's good and bad stories there and good and bad examples. There's yep, independent directors that have done terrible jobs running their company <laughs> and, and they do deserve to get voted off the board. And, yeah. and that's where the skills come in or the, you know, the performance mm-hmm. comes in for me. Um, so just being independent isn't enough. I, I completely yeah. agree with you there. Right? Just having an independent board doesn't guarantee anything. But I do see the value in having independent directors on a board and, and that there's some renewal so that there's some new ideas coming in or some new experience coming in from time to time balanced by experienced directors or insiders that have got lots of skin in the game as well and, you know, have, have the company's best interests at heart as well. So to me, it's back to that progress, not perfection thing. It's like trying to find some balance seems to, seems to me to be a good, sensible position to take at this point in time anyway. So let me let me let me just uh, challenge that one more time, and then we'll we'll move on. The sure. the there are two odd thousand eight hundred odd companies on the ASX. Uh, if I don't like the way Jerry Harvey's running Harvey Norman, I can do I can yell and scream, I can carry on, I can vote, I can do whatever. I can just go, you know what? I want to go and put my money with those people I trust and believe in, who are going to do the right thing for my business, or my money, I should say, for their business, um, to to actually maximise the value of my investment and. If 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 it so happens that I I'll use Jerry Harvey I I was a Harvey Norman shareholder I no longer am um, if if I like what Jerry Harvey's doing if I believe he's the right guy to run Harvey Norman I believe he knows more than I do and probably most of his directors do and he sees fit to fill the board with people who he believes are going to make him money because he's still the majority shareholder the an arbitrary set of rules I mean rules have to be kind of lowest common denominator by definition right that's kind of their yeah, base yeah. requirement but at some level if I don't like what Jerry Harvey's doing I'm just going to sell my shares I, I could I could sh- jump up down I could make him change things I could make him adhere to a particular set of, of of independence rules or I can say either I trust Jerry and I'm happy to to, to support him and and invest alongside him and benefit or not from that or I can say thanks Jerry it's been fun but I'm going somewhere else if if I'm in the former camp and and the including the ASX rules, by the way, this is not a, absolutely not an ASX only uh, sorry an ASA only issue. Um, sure. You know, but if, if if I think Jerry's the right guy to lead Harvey Norman and he believes the right directors are X, Y, and Z, but they're not independent according to the rules, um, it does strike me as as somewhat. Um, if 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 you believe in the Harvey Norman story enough to buy the shares, but you don't believe in their ability to pick the right directors, uh, there, there's some there's some cognitive dissonance there at some level potentially. Yeah, look, I completely agree with you personally, Scott. I think, you know, if you don't like the, you know, the company or the way that it's being run or what the board's doing, then you absolutely have the option to sell the shares and move your money somewhere else. And that's something that I'd personally advocate you you do if you feel that way. Um, I mean, I look at, 
I look at Harvey Norman, and I, I've never been a shareholder of Harvey Norman, but, you know, obviously familiar with the company and, you know, lots of the commentary around it. Mm. And, I, I, you know, I personally agree that, you know, Jerry Harvey um, would have the best interests of Harvey Norman at heart, right, and that, mm. you know, he's obviously a good guy to, to have on that board to, to run that company. But I also look at Harvey Norman's results over a decade and, you know, their earnings declined for, you know, about five years post-GFC and, you know, for the last three years, the earnings have been roughly flat again. So I look at that and think, well, could that board benefit from some new ideas or some, you know, some independence and some freshness? Because they really haven't grown the earnings of the business over the last decade. I mean, it's gone up and down a little bit during that period, but yeah, yeah, yeah. the earnings right now are the same as they were 10 years ago. So has that board done a wonderful job running the company despite all the inside ownership? I, I, I don't know that you could say that it has based on, you know, the earnings they've generated anyway. And I just wonder in that case whether some new ideas or some fresh talent on the board might have, mightn't have done some different things or encouraged them to do some different things that might have helped them grow their earnings. You know, I'm just wondering out aloud that's, you know, as, as you say, yeah, sometimes no, yep, it's yep. counterfactual. How do you know? But it, right, um, right. <laughs> but I look at it and I wonder. That's a fair right, question. That, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Whether there might have been some improvement if there had been some fresh blood added to the board in the last five, mm. six, seven years. Let, let me thank you. Uh, thank you. That's. A, I mean, it's a fair, fair counterpoint for sure. And, and that, they're, they're two sides of the argument. So rather than try and force us to a conclusion, they're, they're the they're the worthwhile they're the worthwhile considerations. Let's go to incentives. You mentioned that a little bit earlier about bonuses and other things. And I am. I'm pretty. I'm pretty strong on this as as a commentator, an investor, as an advisor. Um, for all the royal commission and the everything else's that are done, and and ethics training and all those other things, you know, um, what gets measured gets done, and, and what gets paid gets measured, right? And and I'm I'm flabbergasted that we don't have a stronger sense among. The commentary, including me, which is of limited value, but but for, for what it's worth, um, you know, people want change at the top of the banks, or they want change in culture, and yet they still are paying seven-figure bonuses for this year's earnings per share growth. And you think, you know what, guys, that that's that's exactly how you get crappy results: is you incentivize the here and now over the long-term benefit health of the business. And you look at Westpac's Oztrack thing, you know, one point three billion dollar fine. Um, how much money was knocked back year after year after year for compliance staff that may well have saved the bank literally a billion dollars? They couldn't have spent more than 300 million on those staff over that period of time. And so they've literally cost cut their way to oblivion by, you know, doing doing something that was just frankly stupid in the first place. Secondly, they weren't prepared to do it. And thirdly, the CEO or the bank or the board, not individual people, I'm not going to um, slander anybody here and get myself in legal trouble, but the reality is it's in no one's interest at that point in time to say, you know what, we should actually lower our profits issue and put some more money into compliance. Right? That's the last thing anyone's going to do unless right, right. they know they're going to be shareholders in 2020. And if you are, then you're going to say, well, actually, you know what, guys, let's make sure we don't have a billion-dollar fine coming at us. Let's make sure we're, we're set up for success. Here are some risk areas. Who's doing what? When it comes to incentives, just long, long preamble, sorry, Matt. When it comes to incentives, um, the ASA's view on, on how a, a, a company board and manager are best incentivized, do you guys have a, a policy on that? How would you be talking to some companies about that? We, we do. And I, this is one of the probably, the, you know, the, the most detailed and, uh, you know, toughest areas that monitors dig into, um, mm. particularly with those, you know, roughly ASX 200 companies we cover. Uh, and if you read an annual report and you go to the remuneration report section, mm. it is very detailed and very complicated. And the average, you know, investor is going to have a hard time, I think, you know, making yeah. sense of it. Um, so that's, again, where ASA can be a benefit to you. We're digging into those reports and, and you know, mapping the trends over, you know, five-year periods and then, you know, voting according to how management is proposed or is being remunerated versus the results. So what I mean by that is, we, you know, we look at what the base level of pay is or the fixed level of pay is for the, the management team and the company as a whole. And then we look at the shareholder return. You know, is the, is the shareholder return growing in line with the way that remuneration's been growing? So that's one of the first things we'll, we'll hone in on. And then when it gets to incentives itself, um, you know, our position is that at least, um, you know, 50% of the CEO's pay should be at risk. So what that means is, there's, you know, half, roughly half their pay is, uh, you know, is their salary and the other half is uh, incentives or bonuses, both short and long term, that again have, you know, measures or metrics in them that are aligned with shareholders. So what we mean by that is they're, they're measurements that are going to, and it d d differs for different companies, of course, based on the industry or the sector that they're in, 
but you know what what are the the metrics or the measurements or the criteria that should lead to long-term shareholder growth again it's not 100% fail safe all the time but um, you know what are what are some measurements that are appropriate for this company and then holding those management teams and boards to account for delivering them and not paying bonuses when they don't deliver them. So that's really the hot issue or the, you know, one of the big issues we have when we dig into remuneration reports and potentially vote against them. It's where the boards have decided to pay their executives big bonuses when they've underperformed yeah. um, or they haven't hit their own metrics. And, mm. uh, and, and You're backdating or repricing of options, right? That kind of exactly, thing. exactly. Yeah. And when it comes to the long-term part of it, Scott, to your point, we don't want them just focused on the short term. So a lot of companies will have long-term bonuses that are based on three-year periods. Our recommendation mm. is at least four years, preferably five, mm -hmm. so that you do get much better decisions, hopefully, from the company in terms of how they're managing their capital and their decision-making longer term. So again, it's not a perfect science. I'm going to get it right 100% of the time. But there's someone from ASA digging into these reports for you for the big companies and trying to hold the boards and the management teams to account when they underperform so that they're not being paid, you know, unfair un, uh, or you know, unreasonable bonuses in periods where they haven't grown shareholder value. Hmm. I'm going to I'm going to evoke Warren Buffett again because it's easy and it uh, makes me sound smart. Um, <laughs> but Buffett, Buffett, I read to me a while ago from Buffett, and it's, and it's logical when you think about it. I think I'm pretty sure that was the first time I'd confronted the issue. It was probably ten years ago now. So um, he talks about though. So so I think that's all fair. I think where I would again, if I'm if I'm going to be critical, just for the fun of having a sure. conversation, um, and, and suggest maybe a different way is Buffett has said in the past that he doesn't want to incentivize his managers. If, if you're running an oil company, the oil price goes up, and you get a bonus because you've outperformed then you've, you've earned exactly none of that and you've benefited from the whole lot. Equally, the oil price goes down, profit goes down, you get no bonus. No matter yep. what you've done to fix the operations of the business or future-proof the business or build the brand or build the long-term value. Um, and the same to some degree with, I, I, I really dislike, ironically, total shareholder return metrics. Not because I don't love it when the share price goes up, but because the share price is set by the market, not by the, the CEO. And if you incentivizing TSR, you're incentivizing the CEO to go out there and pump the share price, which yes, in the short term as an investor, you benefit from because the share price goes up. But unless you're selling out at the same time, the, the CEO gets their bonus and buying back in again. Um, it doesn't really matter what happens this year. I mean, I'm a long-term investor. Some of my companies I've held for well more than that. Oh, gee, it must be close to two decades for a couple of them. Um, I don't you really started care investing whether, when you were 15, right, Scott? Well, that, 13, 13. <laughs> um, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't care if my CEO gets a, gets a TSR bonus in 2012, right? Because I'm still here in 2020. And whether, whether the share price is up or down in 2012 is of zero consequence to me. Um, I would yep. rather a, a CEO... And maybe maybe it's not the CEO, maybe it's the, their team, but but you know, be, be incentivized and, and rewarded for the things they did to improve the business, not to boost the share price, not to outperform, not to grow profits by X, although those things are all lovely. If they've been again, oil is just an easy, easy example, but there are similar sure. retail sales, for example, during either a bust or a boom, same story. If you're if you're running a you know, AP Eager selling new cars, you, you incentivize the, the bloke with the lady running it. For, for new car sales, if they get the right part of the cycle, they're, they're squillionaires. If they miss it, they never get a bonus. Um, just, again, I guess a thought on, on how we can add some nuance to that sort of thinking and, and discussion. Yeah, look, I, I think they're, you know, they're really good points to raise and I'm not sure that I have, you know, a great answer for that other than to say, you know, if, if a company continues to grow its earnings consistently over time, then shareholder mm. return normally follows. So I True. kind of understand why, you know, us and others have honed in on shareholder return as one measure for long-term incentives because if the management team is doing a good job consistently over time, then, uh, you know, then the share price normally follows that regardless of what the individual CEO is doing at the time. Now, if you're an oil company and the oil price fluctuates a lot, you know, that's going to be tough, right? And I don't know how you design a, you know, a better measure. To, to, to deal with that. We do say with the short-term part of the incentives, for example, that, you know, one of the hurdles should be a financial one, whether that's profit growth or, um, you know, EBITDA growth or whatever it might be that's appropriate for that country, company, sorry. But then the other half of short-term should be non-financial. So that's things like net promoter score or it's things like customer satisfaction or it's like things that. like... Yep. Um, you know, improvement in certain areas of the business in, from previous years, et cetera. I mean, it's different for every company, but we do try and have some non-financial measures in there for the short-term incentives so they're not just doing something to pump up the share price or the profit number for this year. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. again, it's a balance. You're never going to get it right 100% of the time with every company, but I would just say, again, like over time, if the 
if the company's doing a good job growing their earnings over time, shareholder return follows, and that's a good way to incentivise, you know, people at, at you know, at one level. And yeah, if there's a better sense. idea, then, you know, we'd love to hear about it. And, you know, being a member organisation, that's the way that you kind of get I'm changed. happy for you to pay me to consult on remuneration policies. <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, I, uh, I, no, you've got to pay me for it. Uh, I, look, I, no, I, th- I don't take the point. I think that's, you know, it's it's easier being me than you because I get to say these things. I don't have to actually either member manage a membership or even, uh, you know, you, again, the pro- progress and perfect thing. I get to say, I think the perfect solution is X. You guys say, well, let's just let's just try to ratchet things up a little bit. Let's just try and improve things iteratively. And I think that's that. You know, both can be true, right? Some to some degree. Yeah. I, have a, have a, I mean, like, if there was a better way to measure long-term incentives than TSR or mm-hmm. total shareholder return, I think that's something we would, you know, our committee would obviously want to want to adopt. So, yeah, yeah, if there sure. is a better way to measure the long-term <laughs> performance of a management team in the company, then you know, then yeah. that's clearly yeah. something we'd consider. I think, I mean, for what it's worth, I think I think with some time and effort, and you have to make sure there's an ROI in doing the work. But I think, you know, oil, oil is a great example, right? Like, are you managing? Are you measuring? Are you literally measuring the the profitability, or are you measuring things like lost time, injury, cost control, right, cost right. per barrel? You know, and and they have to be specific. It's very hard to have a policy about that for 200 companies all in slightly different industries. Yeah. Um, I think if you, you know, if, if someone to pay me a you know a quarter million dollars to be an industry uh, remuneration consultant, I'm happy to go and design that for each individual company or industry. But that's a, you know that's the uh, that the, I think there are, I think there are ways that it could be done. Whether it's the ASA's job to try and make that you know um, that level of detail, I think that's probably above anyone's remit realistically, unless you're in the business or getting paid to do it. Yeah, the time. look, I, 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 I guess I'll just summarise it all by saying you know the bottom line is we're trying to make sure that. You know, the boards are remunerating their executives and their teams fairly. We we don't we understand that it's a competitive environment and that sometimes you have to pay CEOs a lot of money to run a company and as much as socially you can question that sometimes. Yes, exactly. As a exactly. shareholder I look at it and go, yep. look if yep. take Alan Joyce at Qantas, for example, you mm-hmm. know, he's a very highly paid CEO, but if he's the best guy to run Qantas, then the ASA are not gonna vote against him just because he's paid a lot of money. They'll vote against the remuneration in that year if Alan Joyce has paid a, an enormous bonus that he didn't deserve based on the performance of the company. But, yeah, um, sure. but yeah, it's, it's again, it's a nuanced, you know, kind of delicate area at times. Um, really what we're trying to do is make sure that the bonuses in particular that are paid to executives and, you know, companies yeah. are, you know, consistent with what shareholders have, have seen or the performance of the company, not just, you know, looking after executives for the sake of it. I think it makes perfect sense. Mate, um, I, for what it's worth, I, I would actually also, um, uh, I, I'd pay out bonuses over a five-year period subsequent to the year that bonuses earned based on certain metrics being yep. received. So make sure there's that long-term. So if you if you hit your numbers this year, then you get 20% of that number, 20% of your bonus over the next five years, assuming the business keeps performing, which means if you leave in exactly. year two, you better hope you've got good succession planning because the, the new guy or new girl is, is responsible whether or not you get that, you know, six or seven-figure bonus still coming in. You want to be very, very sure you've set the business up well, i.e., you haven't you haven't stuffed channels and you know on the way out to make sure you get your number. You got to make sure yeah, the succession right. planning is good. The long term proposition of the business is good. Um, I'd, I'd throw that in. So you've been very you're very kind with your time, mate. We, we've chatted much longer than I thought we would, but I'm probably not surprised either because you've got lots of, of great stuff to to add. Mate, people can join by going to australianshareholders.com.au. I'm sure you'd happily welcome some new members. Tell them tell them Steve sent you. Um, mate, you've been you've been very kind. Any any parting thoughts? Any parting thoughts? I should say you want to leave with our listeners before we uh, we sign off. The one other quick thing I just wanted to touch on was capital raising. So, you know, that's an issue that a lot of shareholders, you know, um, get in their inboxes or, you know, receive letters again saying, oh, we're doing a, you know, we're doing a capital raising. What do you want to do? Do you want to give us some money? And I, I know you guys talk about that a lot on the Motley Field podcast, which is great. We do. Um, but that's another area where ASA would go in and advocate for you. So if a company does a capital raising that's very unfair to their retail shareholders, um, the ASA is going to go in and, uh, and lobby on your behalf. And a good example of that was Cochlear that, you know, earlier this year, as many people know, raised a lot of money at the, you know, the kind of the, the start of the, the COVID cough. Um, and they, I think they went out with a, uh, you know, I think it was about an $800 million proposed capital raising of which retail shareholders, I think, were only going to get about $50 million of that, that capital raising, which basically means that, you know, 800 million of it was going to institutions <laughs> and only 50 million to yep, retail yep. shareholders. You know, very yep. unfair compared to how yes. many retail shareholders there were off Cochlear at the time. So the ASA, along with a few other groups, I, I suspect, um, lobbied the board very quickly and were able to increase the, um, you know, the retail component of the uh, capital raising up to 220 million. So that meant, you know, if you did apply, I think you still got scaled back maybe around 50%. 
but it meant that retail shareholders weren't diluted as a class. They got as many shares proportionally as what the institutions got in that total capital raising. So, so that's another area where, you know, I guess ASA will, will stand up for you and try and make sure that boards are doing the right thing when they go out and you know, raise capital. And like you've said many times, I still think you look at the individual capital raising and decide whether it's a good place to put your money, of course, but ASA will be standing up for you there to, you know, to try and make sure that you're being treated fairly anyway when the company raises money. Yeah, and I have no issue with that. I think it's it, it's one of those things that most actually most shells won't appreciate the value of the work you guys are doing in that area. But the the, the value, even if unappreciated, is is very real. Uh, yeah, and the absolutely. the amount of money that available to retail shareholders, and the profits, frankly, that otherwise would be foregone um, to institutional shareholders, instead, is is a big big difference. And I think it's where I, I think there's a there's a massive probably to take us full circle actually as we sign off. There is a massive imbalance between the attention paid to institutional shareholders, and I'm going to say outright, I think institutional shareholders are in it negative as a shareholder class relative to other shareholders, i.e. retail shareholders, because they tend to be much more short-term. I heard right. a CEO say once, I won't name the person because I'm not, I can't remember whether it was public forum or not, um, 80% of that person's time was taken up with talking to fund managers and investors, um, <laughs> right. fast-market fund managers. Now, I don't, I don't mind that necessarily, but if you think about, look, I'm, you know, I'm no friend, we, we actually have a fund manager business at the Motley Thor for what it's worth, but um, you know, fund managers a group tend to be super short term. It's three months, six month targets. It's pump the price up here. It's do this deal so that I can get some money now. Um, you know, they, they tend to be very short term in nature. Not all of them. And there are some great fund managers out there, some great stock pickers out there. Sure. But I'm not entirely sure whether they're, they're delivering value, long term value for all shareholders the way they could and certainly not the way the ASA is doing. So and that, you guys are fighting the good fight on that one. And the more attention companies can pay to Retail shareholders who tend to be longer-term shareholders, frankly, who tend to be Absolutely, who will yeah. stay exactly, and, and there's value in that. Not, not we shouldn't be sticky by the way as retail shareholders just because we're lazy or because we happen to be there. We should sell when there's no reason to hold the shares anymore. But as a general rule, we're buying businesses, retail shareholders in general, as well as multi-full members, and listeners, buying businesses that we think are long-term winners. And so, you know, as I said, I've been member, I've been a shareholder of many companies for many, many years. Um, because they are long-term success stories that I want to be part of for a very long time. And I, I should hope, I would hope a company would listen to people like you and us and say, hey, you know, we are, we're here for the long term. We're here to, we're not here to support the company regardless. We're here to be shareholders of the company, own the company as long as it makes sense. But for, for the most part, we are going to want you as a management team to really go and create long-term value in a way that perhaps other classes of shareholders don't put as much focus and emphasis into. Absolutely, yeah, completely agree. So, uh, so yeah, really appreciate the chat, mate. Thank you. And, um, yeah, if, if people are interested, australianshareholders.com.au is the website. Obviously, it's free to go on there. There's lots of info on there that you can kind of dig around. And uh, and there's also a list of all the local member meetings that we have on there. So you can you can head along to a member meeting as a guest for free and, and check it out. And, um, you know, if, if you like it, then I think it's about 130 bucks a year to be a, a member of the ASA. So not a lot of cost and, uh, you know, lots of benefits, I think, that uh, that make it worth it if you're a you know, serious investor. Well, so if you got me across the line, I will, I will finish this chat. I will jump online and rejoin Fantastic. Australian Shareholders Association, mate. You've done, you've done a good job. These guys Thanks, are out there for good guys. Whether you're a member or not of the Australian Shareholders Association, they genuinely are out there trying to improve the lot of the individual retail investor. And that's, I mean, it's an important role they play. Uh, Stephen's a good guy. As I said, we've chatted a few times. And so very, very pleased that you um, you accepted the invitation to come and join us because I think it's an area that we don't often talk about, but one that, um, you know, it's, if it is a shareholders union, then so be it. But uh, a group of like-minded shareholders who are out there trying to make sure that corporate Australia is looking after not just the big boys who get all the phone calls and all the time, um, but actually also look after the interests of retail shareholders as well. So, Stephen, thank you very much for joining me. All I have to say is fool on. Fool on. Thanks, Scott. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.